0: Okay, let's get started. My name's John Glazer. I'm Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. I want to welcome everyone to the Hayek Auditorium today for an important event. Saudi Arabia and its coalition partners began bombing Yemen in March 2015, justified by internal instability and the near ouster of a loyal Saudi client from power It was a brutal conflict from the beginning uh, and many observers spoke out against abuses particularly by the Saudi-led coalition um, within weeks of the start of the war. But for a very long time, uh, it seemed that beyond a few intrepid journalists and uh, human rights organizations and policy analysts here in Washington, no one really paid it much attention even as the humanitarian situation became more and more dire. The United States has provided the Saudi-led coalition with crucial assistance from the very beginning, starting in the Obama administration and moving into the Trump administration. At the latest count, the Saudis and their partners have dropped, with our help, almost 19,000 bombs in Yemen in less than four years. That's an average of about 14 attacks per day. In violation of the laws of war, they've bombed schools, hospitals, residential areas, markets, civilian infrastructure. Tens of thousands of civilians have been killed or maimed by these bombs. I think the first moment this conflict got widespread national and international attention was on August 9th of this year when Saudi Arabia dropped a laser-guided bomb on a school bus filled with Yemeni children headed to a field trip. 44 children and 10 adults were killed. The harsh images of smoldering twisted metal and mangled bodies were enough to garner considerable news coverage. Um, A large crater still marks the spot where the bomb fell. And just a few yards away from it, uh, a, a large sign is posted with big lettering in both Arabic and English. It reads, quote, America kills Yemeni children. We shouldn't doubt that many Yemenis feel that way. Another moment of belated national attention came in late October when the New York Times published a lengthy report on the conflict along with this image. The girl in this photograph is seven-year-old Amal Hussein, and she is suffering from starvation. A result of the bombing campaign as well as the blockade the Saudi coalition has imposed on Yemen which prevents food aid and humanitarian supplies from getting into the country. An estimated 14 million Yemenis are in need of food. Eight and a half million are on the brink of starvation. And one estimate put the number of 85,000 Yemeni children under the age of five have starved to death. Saudis have been credibly accused of using starvation as a method of combat, which is a serious war crime. About a week after this photo appeared in the New York Times, this poor girl also perished. One more digit in the flurry of statistics. This has happened to tens of thousands of Yemenis. It's kind of a futile enterprise as we sit here in our comfy seats, but if we can try to multiply the brief glimpse of human suffering depicted in this photograph by orders of magnitude, by tens of thousands, We might be able to begin to grasp the enormity of the crimes that the Trump administration has helped enable and that our tax dollars have helped facilitate. Fortunately, a few vocal members of Congress have corralled their colleagues to exercise their constitutional authority to check the president's war powers and put an end to US involvement in this shameful and unnecessary slaughter. One of them is here today, and I'm very honored to welcome him to the podium now. Please give him a round of applause. Congressman Ro Khanna.
1: JOHN GLASER, thank you uh, for your leadership, the sobering presentation, and uh, sobering picture. I'm uh, honored to be here. Uh, very grateful for the Cato Institute's voice I don't think I ever thought I'd be speaking at the Hayek Auditorium, uh, but uh, my professors from University of Chicago will be proud. The uh, reality is that the Cato Institute has been a voice uh, for restraint and non-intervention over the past two decades, one of the strongest voices. Uh, and on that, uh, there is, in my view, large growing agreement in the United States Congress. John talked about the humanitarian crisis, and I just want to put it in a little bit more perspective. And I'm sure Kate Kaiser will, who's been a leading advocate for this. The UN uh, has reports that say you could have a famine that affects up to 12 to 14 million people in Yemen. Now, to put that in context, the largest famine in recent history was in West Bengal in 1943 and that took about 3 million lives. This, we're talking about 12 to 14 million. Rwanda, there were 800,000 deaths. Bosnia, about 100,000. So you have a possibility of suffering on an unimaginable scale. And we know what the cause of the potential famine is. And there are people already, as John pointed out, dying kids every day of malnourishment, cholera, or starvation. But we know that the food and medicine uh, isn't getting in to Yemeni civilians. This is not complicated rocket science. It's not some complicated foreign policy issue. Bracket what you think Yemen's government should look like, whether it should have the old uh, government back or how much role should it be for the Houthis or the Saudis or the influence on Iran. It's a very simple point. The Saudis right now are bombing Hodeidah. As a result, not enough food and medicine is getting in, and there's extraordinary inflation in Yemen because of a lack of food and medicine, and most people aren't able to afford what they need to live. Now, Martha Sen has said that famine is always a political problem. It's never that we don't have the food or medicine. If you talk to people, often in my district, they'll say, well, why can't we just get food and medicine in. And I know we have someone from Oxfam and we have folks from many relief agencies. The problem isn't that the world isn't able to get the food and medicine to supply. The problem is that the bombing campaign and the restrictions on the ports aren't allowing that to get to the Yemenese people. So what we have said is, bracket the political question. Griffith at the UN, Special envoy Griffith can figure out the political question. Let's just have an immediate ceasefire a cessation of violence so that we can save human lives. That shouldn't be a difficult political issue. That should be something that everyone in our country wants. And we introduced about a year and a half ago, working with Gio Saba and my team, and my national security advisor, Kate Kaiser, and other nonprofit groups, a War Powers Resolution that said the United States is not allowed to refuel Saudi planes or assist Saudi planes in targeting without the authorization of Congress. Now, when we introduced that resolution a year and a half ago, and you all remember this, we had to try to convince colleagues that the United States was involved. And I said, it's only in Washington. I mean, everyone on the New York Times or reads the New York Times front page knows that we're involved. I started to realize classified briefings are just affirmation of front page New York Times articles. But we had to get people in to convince our colleagues that we were involved. And we finally, we got a compromise resolution that at least acknowledged that we were involved and that that involvement was unauthorized. But back then, there was no appetite uh, from either party's leadership, frankly, uh, to uh, stop the support of the Saudis. Senator Sanders and Senator Lee showed great courage in uh, the Senate. They made progress. They introduced the resolution. They got to about 44 votes. Uh, And then there was a loss of momentum. And then, as John pointed out, you had two events. You had these horrific images coming from uh, the uh, Yemen of kids dying, of kids being bombed, buses being bombed. And you had the death of Khashoggi. And I think the death of Khashoggi was a turning point. And the irony is uh, he was killed because he was critical of the war in Yemen. But it took his death for the world to listen to what he had to say. Uh, And it's a sense of sort of our uh, capacity for moral imagination that when someone who people knew or who wrote on the Washington Post suffered that kind of gruesome death, finally we woke up. But the images of children dying and civilians dying in Yemen uh, wasn't enough. And so we reintroduced the Congressional War Powers Resolution, uh, and we were denied a vote in the House of Representatives. They, the, the, the clear War Powers Resolution says that any member of Congress can introduce a resolution and you should have a vote within 15 days if there are activities hostilities that are unauthorized, and we did not get a vote. Now, there has only been one time, as I understand it, that this has gone to the Supreme Court. In the case of El Salvador, members of Congress sued the administration, saying that uh, they were unauthorized in activity, and they sued under the War Powers Resolution. And the court actually found for the executive branch against Congress, and the reason they found for the executive branch is Congress was silent, and the court said, in a dispute between branches, we're going to defer to the branch that is more vocal. The problem is not with the courts, the problem is with Congress. We need to be willing to vote and exercise our Article I responsibility in saying that war is not allowed without congressional authorization, and we haven't been willing to do that in uh, the House of Representatives. And then you have, uh, again, Senator Lee and Senator Sanders, very courageous effort in the Senate. This time they made progress. They got 63 votes. Uh, but uh, I hear now that uh, on Monday they are trying to offer an alternative watered-down resolution uh, that may not uh, pass the War Powers Resolution to stop our support of the Saudis in Yemen. Let me end with a few comments of why this matters beyond the humanitarian crisis. On one level, all of us should care just because of the pictures of the young girl up there. I mean, it's, it's going to be a stain on the conscience of every person in power or responsibility that we have been silent and complicit in the catastrophe that's happening in Yemen. It's uh, something that all of us will live with. And so we need to fight just on a basic humanity. But when you look more broadly at our foreign policy, I was struck by this uh, article I read recently in The Times on the rise of China. And you, of course, look at China's flaws, the uh, incarceration of some of the Muslims, millions of Muslims, and the state-sanctioned state control of private enterprise. But there was one thing more than any that struck me in the five-piece article that the New York Times had done. China has not gone to war in nearly 40 years since 1979 with Vietnam. Think about that. For an administration that says our big competition is China, one of the powers, us, has been bogged down in almost every conflict from Iraq to Libya to Syria, now Yemen, I mean, ask people that sometimes there's such a disconnect between Washington. When I go back to your communities and ask folks, do you think the United States should be involved in a proxy war between the Saudis and Iran and the Houthis and Yemen? Is that where the United States strategic interests lie? Most Americans will say, where is Yemen on the map? They don't understand why in the world we would be engaged in that kind of interventionism. If we want to lead the 21st century, we have to return to a foreign policy of restraint, one that develops our capabilities, our potential in communities across America, and one that is not getting bogged down in conflicts that are unwinnable, that are going to lead to greater resentment of the United States, and that don't advance American interests. The good news is that this is a view that more progressives are sharing and more folks, frankly, in the Freedom Caucus are sharing. I never thought that Mark Meadows would be a bigger ally of mine in Congress on certain issues than my own party. But there is an emerging consensus that we need greater restraint, a greater role for human rights. And I think Yemen is such an obvious case for that to begin. So I appreciate, Cato, uh, your leadership. I appreciate our Uh, other panelists, and I am committed to continuing to fight in the House uh, to stop uh, our support of the Saudis in this war. Thank you.
0: really appreciate the congressman's comments and they're a good starting point for us. Um, To my left is Caroline Dormany. Uh, She's a policy analyst in defense and foreign policy studies here at the Cato Institute. She recently co-authored a lengthy paper on the effect of uh, U.S. arms sales, including to countries like Saudi Arabia. Um, Scott Paul to my right is a humanitarian policy lead at Oxfam, and he recently returned from a trip to Yemen. So it's important to get his insights on the facts on the ground. Kate Kaiser is a policy director at Win Without War, a project of the Center for International Policy. And prior to her current position, she served as director of policy and advocacy at the Yemen Peace Project. Um, So I want to start with Caroline. can you just give people a sense of uh, the extent of U.S. involvement, what the specifics are of our help to the Saudi coalition, when it started, what what the status of it is
2: right now? Absolutely. Um, let me back up a little bit first and tell you a little bit about my background in this field. So I work on defense politics, force structure, international arms trade, basically anything that is weapon systems related is within my wheelhouse. So I'm coming at this problem from a very specific viewpoint. Um, and I've been working with my colleague, Dr. Trevor Thrall, for well over a year now, looking at how do we assess the risk associated with arm sales? How do we estimate some of the downstream consequences that can come from some of these sales? And, you know, we're looking at a bunch of different factors, and there are a lot of different things that can go on, but I think what's most striking is that Arm sales aren't a quick, one-and-done transaction. You don't export something and then throw your hands up and say it's no longer my problem. Um, some of these systems can be in a foreign military's arsenal for 30 years, conservatively. If they're doing life extension programs, if they're maintaining their systems well, it could be up to 50 years. That's about how long some of our major systems exist in the, UN, the U.S. military, so it's not unreasonable to think that anything that we 're selling now could have an impact in that country and that region for thirty to fifty years, and you know Saudi Arabia hasn't when they first started the conflict they didn't have to go out and immediately buy all of the planes they 're going to use and all the bombs they're going to use. They already had those stockpiled because they 'd been buying weapon systems from the international coalitions for years, primarily from the US and we have continued to sell weapon systems to Saudi Arabia and other coalition members like the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain while this conflict is happening. And we're not alone in this. The U.S. is not the only country that is supplying all of these weapon systems. The U.K., France, Spain, Germany, some of our main European allies are also selling weapons. But the U.S. involvement is a little bit different and that we're giving more security assistance, we're giving more military assistance than these other countries. We're not just selling a large volume of weapons, we're also helping with targeting. Until recently we were helping refuel their planes, we help gather intelligence and share intelligence with them. A couple of months ago it came out that US Army Special Operations Forces were actually active on the ground in Yemen. So while there is enough blame to go around for you know, supplying these countries that are doing this horrible, horrible work in Yemen. It's not only the US. When you look at some of the effects that these weapons have caused, the the casualty rate in this conflict is high, has been sustained at a very high rate. I think right now it's about eight Yemeni civilians per day that die just from warfare. So that's not involved in starvation. That's not involved in the famine or the diseases that have flourished in Yemen under these circumstances. The, those eight people, those eight Yemeni civilians die from bombs and bullets that largely the US is supplying. So when you think about all of these downstream consequences that have been brought about, how bad it is, how many people, when they look at this conflict, say, why? why are we involved? Why are we condoning this? Why aren't we doing something to try and come to a diplomatic solution, try and come to a peaceful resolution to this conflict? And part of that answer is there's a strategic alliance between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia to counter Iran's influence in the region. But the Trump administration has also introduced another reason. They have amended some of the guiding principles of arms sales. Basically, it tells the DOD and the State Department under what conditions we should be exporting arms. And the Trump administration this year amended a lot of these documents to say that economic considerations should be included when we're deciding who to sell weapons to, how much we're going to sell, what types of systems we're going to sell. And so they've really introduced this factor of profit. And that's one of the most problematic things that I see when I'm coming at this conflict and when I'm looking at all of the arms that were flowing into these countries. Because for me, strategic concerns and foreign policy goals should never be subservient to profit. That's not what this country is run on. That's what I fundamentally believe. And so when you're analyzing this conflict, you have to understand what reasons are we doing this? Why does our structure look like this? So I'm really interested to see what Kate and what Scott have to say about where they see this conflict going moving forward and our involvement. And I'm hoping that I'll have a cause for optimism by the time that we end this talk.
0: <laughs> Scott, do you want to tell us about your trip? And
3: uh... Yeah. Um, and maybe I can give a bit of a background on the humanitarian situation. I've taken, <laughs> I've taken to describing the situation in shorthand through four eyes. Um, so those four eyes. The first is inequality, Yemen's baseline pre-conflict condition. Yemen's economy featured a few men making huge amounts of money off of its natural resource wealth, uh, and women who were socially disadvantaged, and uh, a very rigid caste system that kept roughly 10 to 15 percent of Yemen's population uh, endemically and acutely poor. So that was Yemen's condition, entering into the conflict. Inequality. The second is institutions. In 2014, when the Houthis resorted to force and assumed the functions of the Yemeni government, they put a minder in all of the ministries. Sooner or later, those ministries weren't functioning very well. Fast forward to the summer of 2016. While I was in Yemen, actually, President Hadi decided to move the central bank to Aden, it was essentially a paper decision with no effect other than to, uh, to, to remove the capacity of the existing central bank. And in the intervening almost two and a half years, the 1.5 million Yemeni civil servants um, have mostly not received government salaries. And that's had a crippling effect on the economy. Add to that that the health ministry, the education ministry, other ministries that provide critical public services aren't providing those services in the way Yemenis need to depend on. So, uh, that's institutions. The third is imports. Yemen depends on, about, on imports to meet about 90% of its food needs, um, and somewhere between 50 to 80% of its fuel needs, depending on, on the day, and the week, and the month. Um, the Saudi-led coalition has imposed what we call a de facto blockade. For a time, that was a full blockade, but for, for most of the past nearly four years, the coalition has effectively um, imposed a set of clearance requirements and inspections requirements that have so delayed the entry of critical food, f- fuel, and medicine into Yemen that by the time those goods get in, they are at a lower quantity and, most importantly, way more expensive. Way, way, way more expensive. Um, and lastly, infrastructure. Specifically, Yemen's critical economic infrastructure, its private sector infrastructure, and its food production infrastructure. Um, Houthi shelling is, is, contributes to a lot of this, but the Saudi-led coalition's air campaign um, is extremely culpable. And without, we're not, we're not a legal agency or investigative agency, um, but it's very hard to look at the pattern of bombing and not, and not see that uh, food production facilities, health facilities, um, schools, uh, hospitals, ports, have not disproportionately been damaged over the course of this conflict. So the net effect of all of that is an economic crisis. And that's why it's it's affected so many people. Um, Most people who are suffering are suffering because they're not making enough money. And with inflation, that money is worth less than it's ever been worth before. And they're trying to buy goods that are more expensive than they've ever been before. So you picture Amal on that screen. And it's a picture of just Amal, but also imagine her parents are around her. And Amal has siblings. And if that picture was taken in a hospital or a clinic, it means that her parents decided to forego at least one, probably multiple days of earning opportunities in order to pay to take her to that health clinic. And in so doing, their other children have suffered now. This is every day for the poorest half of Yemen's population. Parents are making Sophie's choice every single day. They are deciding which of their children will live and which of their children will die. And the better choices are when their sons go off and fight for money, or they sell their daughters into marriage. So that's that's a picture of Yemen's uh, humanitarian crisis. Um, Before I hand it over, I do wanna just sort of note um, the context in which this conversation is taking place. You'll note there aren't any Yemeni voices on this panel. Um, the, the panel is called Saudi Arabia's War in Yemen. I think a lot of Yemenis would probably say um, this is just as easily the Houthis' war in Yemen, and we need to be a bit cognizant of where we sit in the, in the broader debate. And I do hope we hear from some Yemenis if they're in the room or uh, or able to contribute otherwise. But I still, all the same, while we need to approach this conversation with a healthy dose of modesty, I also want to say why I think it's incredibly important to focus on the U.S. role. Um, one, because by offering unconditional support to one of the parties, the U.S. policy uh, towards Yemen has essentially communicated anything goes. And that's created a permissive environment for all of the parties, including the Houthis, to commit violations the scope of which are difficult to to comprehend. Secondly, right now, the Saudis and the internationally recognized government of Yemen are meeting with the Houthis in Sweden. They are just a couple of the many parties involved in Yemen's war. But they are the couple of parties that if they are able to reach agreement on a couple of core issues, we can start to turn the tide of the key drivers of the humanitarian crisis. And I I can tell you for sure what is happening is the government of Yemen is going and saying, take a look at Resolution 2216, the last resolution passed by the Security Council two and a half years ago. And this says that the Houthis, you need to surrender and give up your heavy weaponry, and stop performing government functions. And if you don't do that, we're not really interested in talking. And the Houthis are saying, well, we're we're pretty good at fighting, and we don't really feel like making concessions that amount to surrender. So um, we're gonna continue to behave badly. And US support to the Saudi-led coalition essentially says, this strategy is working out just fine for us, and we're, we're prepared to see this continue indefinitely into the future,
0: regardless of the humanitarian consequences. Thank you. So Kate, I know one of the many things you focus on is uh, the goings on on Capitol Hill with regard to this issue. Um, There's been a lot of activity very, very recently on that. Do you wanna uh, inform people?
4: Sure. Um, So I think it's important to note that what we're seeing right now in Congress is really kind of a fever pitch moment of years of advocacy and activism um, by Americans, by Yemenis, um, by relief organizations working on the humanitarian situation. And so um, I'd like to walk you through kind of how we got here. This war was started under the Obama administration. This war is an example of the bipartisan failure on foreign policy that has really viewed military intervention as the tool to secure ourselves, when in fact those interventions actually often make Americans and the world less safe. so under the Obama administration, um, this military support of intelligence sharing, targeting assistance, US personnel helping with airstrikes, um, air-to-air refueling, where the US has offloaded billions of gallons of fuel to both Saudi Arabia and the UAE, was started um, at the start of the intervention in March 2015. Um, and we started to see these violations of the laws of war and likely war crimes since the beginning of the conflict. So um, the school bus attack that happened this past August, um, was just one of hundreds of potentially unlawful airstrikes committed by the coalition, as well as other violations of the laws of war by the Houthis and other warring parties in the conflict. Um, And there are a vast many of those warring parties. Um, So it's not just those two. And so under the Obama administration, um, Chris Murphy, a senator from Connecticut, um, along with Rand Paul from Kentucky, um, started to call the question on why are we arming the coalition who is misusing US weapons and targeting civilians and killing civilians using our support. Um, And so we saw first this vote in August 2016 on a tank sale, um, and 27 senators voted in support to block this sale of tanks to Saudi Arabia. Um, Fast forward about nine months later to June 2017, and um, obviously, there had been a change in administration. Obama, at the end of his administration, put a partial hold on precision-guided munition sales to Saudi Arabia and the coalition um, due to concerns over misuse and civilian casualties in the conflict. Um, but Trump very quickly came in and reversed that hold and decided that we would continue to sell um, weapons unconditionally um, to Saudi Arabia and the rest of the coalition. And so when they notified Congress of a new sale in June 2017, Um, Senators Rand Paul and Chris Murphy, um, as well as many others. introduced another resolution to block this sale of precision-guided munitions. And 47 senators um, voted to block that sale. So you have a 20-senator increase in just a matter of months. And during this time, again, there were continued civilian casualties. There was a kind of an amping up of um, the naval blockade that also affects the air and land ports in Yemen. Um, and it has really been kind of an amplifier effect for the humanitarian crisis. Um, And since that time, you know, in June 2017, one of the key reasons that um, some senators say they let that sale go through um, was because the Trump administration secured commitments from the Saudi-led coalition um, that they would improve their targeting procedures, that they would make things better, um, that they would kill less civilians during that time. It was um, formatted in a letter from then foreign minister from Saudi Arabia, Abdul Jubair. Um, that essentially said we would review our procedures. Um, unfortunately, after that sale, um, there was a continued clear pattern of airstrikes targeting civilians in civilian areas, everything um, from residential areas and hotels to internally displaced people camps, um, who quite literally are some of the most vulnerable people in the country um, and should not be targeted with, by any party to the conflict. Um, and so over this time, there's continued kind of hand-wringing in Congress. There's statements going um, out, floor speeches, um, but there is, no, there's, outside the arms sales, there wasn't really concerted action to call the question on what the U.S. was doing um, until Congressman Khanna, um formed a small coalition um, along with Republicans. Thomas Massey was his co-lead on the Republican side and they introduced a War Powers Resolution. Um, Under the War Powers Resolution of 1973, Congress passed a law in the wake of Vietnam that says, we will not allow the executive branch to get us involved in secret covert wars. And it gives Congress the power um, to essentially force a vote on withdrawing US armed forces from a conflict that it believes it has never authorized, whether through an authorization for the military force um, or it doesn't you know, prevent an imminent threat to the United States or its interests. And so it, it does not fall under the president's Article II powers. Now, as Congressman Khanna um, alluded to when he was giving his speech, um, that fight over H. Conres 81 last year was really about even determining whether the United States was at war um, in Yemen, whether we are actually even refueling Saudi jets and UAE jets. Um, because there was, there was consensus among both parties' leadership that what you're saying we're doing, what the New York Times reporting, is not actually happening. And this is largely because the lack of transparency from the Department of Defense, who, if you look at their statements over several years, give a kind of different story of what we're doing. Sometimes it's targeting precision, sometimes we're doing target selection. Other times, we're just doing trainings on civilian casualties. And kind of this murkiness, I think, was a way for them to continue this support um, that was never authorized by Congress and actually only authorized um, under what's called an acquisition and cross-servicing agreement. Sorry to get a little wonky here, but this is a, a bilateral agreement that DOD is authorized to execute with the country that theoretically is only supposed to allow them to transfer goods and services to military partners. It says nothing in their ability to authorize these agreements about aiding another country's war and actively being involved in hostilities of another country. And this is where the War Powers Resolution comes in. That um, resolution in 1973, again, sought to prevent covert wars like we saw in Laos and Cambodia that really started with US advisors. Um, And so it defines hostilities as when the United States military is is participating in the movement of or helping coordinate the movement of foreign forces in another Um, countries' war. And this is almost quite certainly what we are doing in Yemen, where we are refueling jets so they can go and bomb Yemen. We are helping them pick their targets, coordinating their activities for airstrikes. Um, And so there's certainly over the last period of a year been essentially a growing bipartisan consensus that actually what we're doing in Yemen does constitute war, that Congress should have a say in what we're doing. And that's why after this fight happened in the House last year, we saw 44 senators vote um, in support of a War Powers resolution in the Senate and why um, 63 senators have now said, essentially, like enough is enough. We're not just going to sit by while the Department of Defense tells us everything's fine, while civilians continue to be targeted using our weapons, and the humanitarian crisis spirals out of control. Because the bottom line is that you cannot end this humanitarian crisis without ending the conflict. And as long as the United States continues to provide unconditional military support that also gives this intervention political legitimacy on the world stage, these parties will continue the conflict because they uh, while there is a vast economic cost for Saudi Arabia and the UAE, they have convinced themselves that they must save face, they must win a military victory, and that's the only way that they, can con- t- that they can end the war. And the international community has a lot of leverage to actually change that calculus to say that, no, you cannot continue this tragic and terrible war indefinitely, and that it doesn't actually serve anyone's interest, whether it's Yemenis, whether it's Saudi Arabia, whether it's the United States or the rest of the international community.
0: Thank you. <clears throat> so at the beginning of Kate's comments, uh, she referenced, I think, Chris Murphy's question, why are we uh, supporting the Saudis in this effort? Caroline mentioned it too. And you know, I think there's a few things going on. Um, so the Trump administration's novel uh, justification, or really just the president's novel justification, is that uh, our arms sales in Saudi Arabia is creating jobs and uh, it's, it's good for us um, in a zero-sum kind of financial way. Um, so there's that, but there's also, you know, we've been allied with Saudi Arabia for a long time. Uh, and so sort of out of inertia or strategic habit, we remain committed to that alliance, despite the fact that it's changed over the years. And over the decades, the importance of Saudi Arabia to U.S. interests has just gradually diminished. Um, Another justification is that we need to continue to support uh, the, the the coalition because we have uh, troops and bases on uh, some of these uh, territories, and they allow us to project power in the region. And we're we're rather busy in the Middle East. We have about fifty, somewhere in between fifty and sixty thousand troops. Defense Department sometimes is not all that uh, transparent about the precise number, but uh, we're bombing. Syria and Iraq. We are uh, still occupying Afghanistan. Um, We're involved in in Yemen. And so we we have a lot of of, of activity there. And and the strategic argument is, oh, we need to continue to support these allies because they allow us to project power in the region. But that skips over the point that uh, we actually don't need to be this active in the region. Uh, The strategic importance of the Middle East has been vastly overstated for decades, um, and we don't need to constantly be engaged in um, perpetual low-level violence in order to secure U.S. interests. Um, To broaden that a bit, in your paper, one of the findings in your paper looked at the extent to which arms sales do or don't really uh, further U.S. interest, uh, the extent to which they might Uh, hamper progress towards democratic reforms and stuff. Can you expand on that a bit?
2: So my paper, and Trevor Thrall and I worked on this for an incredibly long time because we wanted to think about all of the inputs and all of the outputs in the system of arms sales. So there are several different kinds of downstream consequences that can come from arms sales. There's anything from um, if you sell weapons to a fragile state, it can sometimes increase likelihood of a coup happening in that country. Um, You get things like blowback, which happened in Iraq, where um, we sold weapons and gifted weapons, to be quite honest, through grants and, and security assistance and all of these different functions to the Iraqi military and the police force. And then when they were confronted by ISIS, they promptly dropped them on the battlefield and they were picked back up and used to fight US soldiers. That's an instance of blowback. Um, There's also a myriad of other downstream consequences, and some of these are actually happening in Yemen. And they're not the ones that you necessarily think of. There are, of course, the humanitarian crimes. There are the humanitarian disasters where civilians are being killed. But there are also the unintended sneaky consequences that you don't always think about. So conflict on armament research is a think tank that mostly does field work in conflict zones. They're, I think they're United Nations funded, um, but they actually embed field, um, field researchers in these conflict zones. And they're responsible just for tracking where arms are coming from and where they end up. So, Some of the arms that the U.S. and some of these European nations have sold to Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain, that are used in Yemen, are actually finding their way not only in the black market in Yemen, because, of course, in a conflict zone, there are rampant black markets for these goods, because you have an increased supply, you've got a great marketplace for it, there are less government controls on this sort of action. But conflict zones also tend to lead themselves to porous borders. So a lot of these weapons, well, I wouldn't say a lot, a a significant amount so that it is noticeable are flowing into Yemen and now out into Somalia and the Horn of Africa. So what we're putting in to Yemen is not actually being contained in Yemen. It is further destabilizing the surrounding region, which then has this feedback loop effect where Well, if the Horde of Africa further destabilizes, then maybe we're going to have to, you know, increase military intervention there, which we already are there. American forces, American military forces, are already active in Somalia. They're already part of a widespread operation that is, you know, counterterrorism, counterpiracy, a blanket umbrella of different reasons why we're active there. But now, if the black markets start getting all of this... All of this weaponry, things are gonna get a lot more destable ultimately. And so you not you don't have to think about just the short-term effects of if we're selling more weapons, we're selling more bombs, more people will be bombed in Yemen, we're also flooding that country, a very destable country, with lots of small arms and light weapons, machine guns, things to make IEDs those flow out from the poorest borders and end up in the neighboring countries and further destabilize the region, which is not the goal that we wanted originally. So you have to think about not just short term, but the long term effects of what's happening there.
0: I should say one of the other justifications is that uh, Iran is supporting the Houthi uh, militias. And, um, you know, that Uh, the the proxy war nature of the conflict serves as a justification for the United States to continue to support the Saudi coalition. Uh, What's curious about that is that the Iranian support of the Houthis prior to the conflict was negligible. I mean, you can find some evidence going back to about 2009. But it ramped up significantly in the midst of the conflict. And so the attempt to uh, stifle uh, an Iranian proxy has actually emboldened both Iran and their proxy, uh, and obviously that's not uh, good for, for the conflict or U.S. interests. Um. Kate, did you have comments on the strategic question of Saudi Arabia, maybe something with uh, Iran, the Iran angle?
4: Sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, the Yemen for the United States has always been security-focused, right? Um, We've been launching drone strikes in the country since 2002. Um, And we, you know, it's really interesting to hear Caroline talk about kind of the different weapon flows, because people forget that we armed and aided former President Ali Abdullah Saleh, who's now dead um, due to the current conflict, um, because of counterterrorism concerns. And yet, Saleh operated um, in what some experts call a security rent-seeking system. And so he would create security threats to get more external aid. Um, And so the United States was providing the CT weaponry that was theoretically to fight Al-Qaeda, but then he was actually using that assistance mostly and giving it to the Revolutionary Guard to go and fight the Houthis in a previous series of wars called the Sada Wars. And so um, by virtue, this misuse of US weaponry has been, in Yemen has been happening for decades. Um, and so, and I think the Iran question is really interesting to kind of view within the frame of the Sada wars that happened. So the Houthis, um, they're not an ethnic movement. They come out of a religious revival movement. They're really a movement based on seeking political power within the Yemeni state. Um, this, you know, and they, they're original leader was killed by the Salak government, and a series of wars were started in 2003, 2004, and lasted till 2009. And ended in a variety of ceasefires, then were restarted, Saudi Arabia actually previously intervened in these wars as the Houthis went over the border um, around 2009. And Saleh used this narrative um, of trying to define the Houthis to external actors to get more support, similar to what he did with counterterrorism. And if you look at how he framed the Houthis during those wars, you know, first they were like... um, uh, a Shia rebel movement. Then they, at one point, they were a Qaddafi um, movement that Libya was aiding because the Gulf states were unhappy with Qaddafi at the time. Um, then he framed them as an Iranian proxy, um, and there's always been this kind of paranoia within the Gulf states about um, this kind of regional uh, power dynamic between Iran and Saudi Arabia, um, about who would have the most influence in the region, and. Um, unfortunately, you know, the Houthis are not good actors by any means. They have committed continued violations of the laws of war um, and potential war crimes um, that have been documented by many different organizations. Um, But the the Iran narrative has really been overblown to garner support in Washington. And what we have seen over the course of the conflict is really like a self-fulfilling prophecy, where the more this, the idea that they're an Iranian proxy is hyped up, the more support the U.S. gives, the more kind of, Um, outrageous. The attacks on civilians happen in Yemen by the Saudi-led coalition, which gives the Houthis a reason to turn more and more towards Iran and seek external support. Um, And not only that, it's also, you know, bolstered in whatever legitimacy they have, the popularity amongst the population as Yemenis are getting bombed from the sky um, by Saudi Arabia and the United States. Because I want to be very clear, many Yemenis, when you talk to them, ask why is the US dropping bombs on us? It's not just Saudi Arabia. Um, And so unfortunately, Washington, as it moved from kind of the fear of communism, has now created this fear of Iran. Um, And we're seeing a very um, similar um, case being made by this administration, in particular by John Bolton um, and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, that really the only way to deal with Iran and its um, destabilizing influence in the region, which that's to say nothing of Saudi Arabia's destabilizing actions in the region, um, not just in Yemen, but in Lebanon and Syria, um, is to uh, address the Iranian issue through military confrontation. And yet what we've seen is that, if nothing else, Iran has honed its asymmetrical warfare throughout the region. And the US is not very good at fighting those types of asymmetrical wars As we've seen over the last 17 years. And so what happens is the US is not really focused on actually um, addressing the reasons why Iranian gets a foothold, Iran gets a foothold in these countries which is typically um, related to political and economic grievances that f- uh, push people to seek alternative um, sources of power within their countries um, and so you know what we have is now this everyone talks about Yemen as a Saudi Iran proxy war but this is a war that was started over local political and economic grievances that came out of an Failed, uninclusive transition process following Yemen's Arab Spring revolution, and no one really talks about that. But like that is so essential to actually solving the conflict, not just the intervention and um, creating a viable unity state that could actually have a chance at peace in the long term. And so you know unfortunately um this iran narrative has kind of captured parts of washington um but you know people like kitty zimmerman even at the american enterprise institute acknowledge kind of how this narrative has been used to paper over what's really happening in yemen to garner more us support and i think it's really important to peel that back because even if you the us were to get fully involved in in the war in yemen which it should not um you wouldn't be addressing the Iranian issue. You would probably be inviting them to get fully involved. Um, and no one knows what that actually looks like if they were to get fully involved. Um, and the better way forward is to actually have Iran help with the negotiations and have them push the Houthis um, to the negotiating table with the U.S. pushing its um, Supportees to the negotiating table. And um, just overnight, there was a report that um, Iran actually wanted to get help at the UN peace process with Martin Griffiths, and he, they were rebuffed because the US objected. And so I think there's, you know, because of this, uh, the administration's desire to go to war with Iran. Um, whether in Iran itself or somewhere in the region, we're seeing the United States actually put up roadblocks um, towards any type of diplomatic solution, whether it is in Yemen, um, potentially in Syria, or even just addressing Iran's own um, you know, fledgling nuclear program that was addressed by the JCPOA.
0: So there was, there was mention of uh, the fact that there are many uh, militants in Yemen, and there was also mention that of the Yemeni perception that the United States is is bombing them and it's not just Saudi Arabia. That's not just true indirectly, it's actually true. We've been bombing Yemen uh, with drones uh, pretty consistently. There was a recent report from the Associated Press that tried to estimate the number of civilians that have been killed in that drone bombing campaign, which Trump has uh, pretty significantly increased in these two years. Um, And it's in the hundreds, uh, but it's hard to, uh, to know precisely because uh, our government doesn't uh, try to find out and determine uh, the guilt or innocence of the people they killed with drones unless there is a complaint brought posthumously that you killed a- an innocent person. Um, and so that that is a, a very real part of this. Um, Scott, I want to throw an optimistic premise at you. Let's say that the Congress succeeds in... Uh, forcing the executive branch to halt support for this conflict? Um, And let's say uh, some kind of political process begins to uh, at least temporarily pacify the situation. What needs to be done to rebuild uh, and recover? Uh, I mean, what, what does Yemen need? What can U.S. influence bring to the table, et cetera?
3: Uh, I don't think I'm ready to hop on board the optimistic presence just, uh, premise just yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, but let's work, let's work up to it. Um, let's say Congress adopts uh, legislation cutting off support. So, and actually, I want to take a step back from this a little bit further, if I could. Um, there are a lot of contradictory truths about the US role in Yemen. Yes, um, I've talked to Yemenis in Yemen who ask, why is the U.S. bombing us? Um, I've also talked with Yemenis in Yemen who have no idea who's bombing them. Um, And I think most people I've talked to don't actually attribute blame to one party or another. Um, In fact, the media narratives get all mixed up. I've I've spoken with people displaced displaced from Hodeidah, um, which is an area for which the coalition has rightly come under heavy criticism for pursuing an offensive. Um, and they've said, well look, we, we tried to stay but we ultimately left because we didn't know where the Houthi landmines were anymore and the Houthi snipers made it impossible for us to go outside. And Houthis dug, up, uh, dug trenches through our sewer lines and so we didn't have any fresh water anymore. And likewise, you have Taz, which uh, has gotten much less international attention but where the Houthis have put in place a horrifically cruel siege. Um, and I've spoken to people who have left ties and said, we were prepared to, to try to see out the siege, we wanted to protect our homes, but then the coalition bombed our neighborhood and we couldn't stay. Um, and so I think there, in the US there is, um, there's a lot of narrative that focuses on the relative virtue of the different actors that doesn't really comport with how Yemenis see the conflict. Um, Yemenis see the conflict first and foremost, as an economic problem. When you ask them, and I don't mean all Yemenis, but particularly poor Yemenis, who are suffering through the worst of this, they want jobs, they want an economic recovery so their money is worth something and so prices come down, and they want the conflict to end. And when they say that, I think they're pretty realistic about what that means. They don't mean everybody stop fighting, but they mean that the principal internationalized parties take the steps necessary to fix the economy and put the government back together, um, at least in a nominal sense so the ministries can function. And they have an intuitive idea that those things are linked, and and guess what, they're right. So coming back to the US and Congress, um, the hardest thing about going to Congress or the administration um, is we as advocates basically are in a position where we have to say, you have to do, you have to make this total break with the last 60 years of conventional wisdom about Middle East politics and U.S. alliances in the region to tell what has been a very close ally that they cannot pursue what they perceive as a core interest of theirs or else the nature of the relationship will fundamentally change. And we can't guarantee it's going to solve the problem. That's a really, really hard, hard ask to make. Um, but I think the, the reasons that John and Congressman Khanna outlined make me feel very justified in making that ask because we know even though the U.S. is in many ways a marginal player in the war, the U.S. is a global hegemon, has a huge amount of influence with the Saudi-led coalition, and has a huge amount of influence at the UN Security Council. And to this point, the U.S. has refused to use that influence to prevent, as Congressman Khanna put it, what would be the largest famine and public health emergency in a generation. So we should be using that. And then, finally, to get around to the premise that John laid out, if that happens, um, I think what we need to be doing is to, first and foremost, make sure that the next phase of peace consultations, there are women in the room, there are youth in the room, there are people representing all of the various Yemeni parties in the room, and to make sure that whatever shape Yemenis choose for the government and the political arrangements that will see them through to the future... That the money that comes pouring in, and it will and ought to, will and ought to pour in, comes through vehicles that are basically pro-poor. This is not going to help if big Gulf donors and international donors basically try to find the nodes of wealth and power that are already in Yemen and further enable and empower them. It's going to exacerbate the, the social and economic inequality that is partly responsible for the, the, the creation of this conflict. And it's going to make things worse.
0: Uh, so one of the many uh, baleful ironies of the conflict is that um, to the extent that part of the justification for our involvement uh, re- refers to terrorism and the sort of post 9-11 war on terror, um, That's curious because, actually, the war has had the effect of bolstering the position of AQAP or Al-Qaeda in the the Arabian Peninsula, Uh, one of the branches of Al-Qaeda that is most focused on attacking the far enemy or the United States, right? Um, And so we're engaged in a conflict that exacerbates the terrorism problem, and that's not actually new. Uh, it was in 2006 that the US, the U.S. intelligence community, a national intelligence estimate, which collects, you know, it's a summary of the findings of all of our intelligence communities, uh, said that the Iraq war was breeding deep resentment and uh, 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 garnering a whole new generation of jihadists. Fast forward to the conflict in Syria. We cooperated with our uh, Arab Gulf allies to. Uh, deliver uh, aid and arms to many rebel groups in Syria that uh, oftentimes ended up in the hands of extremist groups. Again, uh, bolstering the position of precisely the militants that we uh, have declared war on. Uh, We then overthrew the Qaddafi regime in the absence of congressional authority. Uh, And that then became... A kind of safe haven uh, for uh, terrorist groups. And now in Yemen, once again, we are acting based on dubious strategic grounds and straight out falsehoods. And the effect is to make not only the region, but the United States less safe. That's how broken our foreign policy is. Uh, And that's, of course, on top of the incredible human suffering that we're involved in imposing. Um, I want to get to questions, but I want to make sure we have everything out. Is there anything else we want to chat about? Anything in your brains? We're good? Okay, good we'll, questions. Go, we'll go to Q&A. Uh, so there's going to be a uh, microphone being passed around. Uh, please raise your hand. Please wait to be called on. Please do wait for the microphone. This is being live streamed and recorded, so the uh, the... the the cameras need, need uh, uh, we'll go right over here. Um, announce your name and affiliation as well. Uh, and uh, to uh, steal my colleague Christopher Preble's formulation, we have the Jeopardy rule here. Your question must be in the form of a question. <laughs>
5: <laughs> thank you all. Uh, Ishan the Washington Post. Uh, thank you again for this very informative panel. Uh, the line about the last round of talks that collapsed was that the Houthis uh, pulled out. That it, w- it was de- d- demonstrated their bad faith in these proceedings. Um, the the Saudi coalition line about hudaydah which has also been voiced now by various proxies here in Washington, uh, is that Hudaydah has to fall. The Houthis have to be driven out of hudaydah for them to be serious about engaging in a peace process mediated by the UN. That until. A, a serious military victory is scored on them, uh, they will not have the interest to negotiate. Um, I was wondering what the panel thinks about this reasoning. Uh, obviously, it doesn't justify uh, perpetuating humanitarian crisis, but this is the real politic that is being voiced by those close to the coalition.
3: Anyone?
2: Do you want to start? Sure. Um,
3: Trying to figure out whether the Houthis will or can participate in good faith without suffering further military defeats um, is an impossible question. Um, but I do want to, there's a, there's a few data points I think we should bear in mind. First is that the Houthis have been suffering military defeats for the past three years. It hasn't made them any more willing to uh, demonstrate any flexibility in the process. And secondly, and most importantly, and I'm gonna sound like a broken record about this, um, the only terms on which peace talks have proceeded over the past three and a half years is along the lines of Security Council Resolution 2216. Um, I would challenge anyone in this room to find a conflict in which they would want to broker a peace based on one side's unilateral surrender. Not gonna happen. U.S. policymakers and people represented in the Security Council face a choice, and the choices are change the terms of the negotiation or accept ongoing conflict. Um, A Houthi-free future is not in the cards. So um, that's not by any means to suggest good faith by any of the parties. None of them have shown one iota of good faith throughout any of this. But... um, It is worth, given the stakes, um, given the fact that now there are 10 million people on the verge of starvation, 12 to 14 million people who could be subsumed in a famine, it's worth figuring out if the negotiators have maximum flexibility, can we address some of the drivers of that crisis?
2: And I do think there are things you can do in the interim. Just in terms of getting aid into the country in the short term. That is something that is at least reasonably doable as long as the US puts pressure on the people that are operating the blockade. If that were to go go away, even if they were just to let humanitarian aid and food and basic services into the country, things would improve Substantially, and then, and then we could start working on the peace process and, and getting a government that's finally going to be somewhat stable for that country and figuring out what comes down the line in the next 10, 15, 20 years. But I think in the short term, it's incredibly important how you bring the parties to the negotiating table, but you also have to think about all of the people that are being affected by that negotiation, and how to improve things as quickly as possible for the people on the ground. And so I think there are incremental changes that can be made that aren't going to look like a defeat in anyone's, on anyone's side, just to improve conditions to a baseline that we can work from.
4: And I just want to add to something that Scott said, um, is that the Houthis have faced military defeats, um, and yet the Houthis know that the best thing that they are good at is to fight. Um, they have over a decade of war-making experience. Um, and the only time that there were ceasefires during the Saudi war is when there were de-escalatory steps um, taken to have temporary ceasefires. And so the bottom line is if you actually want to stop the fighting, if you want to have progress on the political front, the conflict needs to be de escalated. And when they make um, the Houthis make a commitment to stop ballistic missile strikes into Saudi Arabia, which was one of the confidence building measures that Martin Griffiths got the Houthis to agree to quite recently, but then the coalition continues to bomb Hodeidah. Um, it's pretty clear that the coalition is not uh, holding up their end of the bargain, right? And if we play out the logic here in some circles of Washington that, well, Hodeida just needs to fall, and then they'll be ready to negotiate, let's play that logic out. From what we've seen in the past is that there was a a very bloody fight to take back Aden, to take back Marib. That did not end the conflict. That did not make the Houthis come to the negotiating table. That just made them dig in further into their areas of control. And so if they were to lose Hodeidah, which would be a very bloody, horrific, costly fight um, that the UN has said could cost 250,000 civilians their lives, um, then the fight would move on to Sana and the rest of the Northwest, where the majority of Yemenis actually live. And the Houthis have now largely consolidated their power over these areas, and so there's really no incentive for them to then surrender. Um, And so like Scott was saying, the the terms of the negotiations have to be changed because the terms of the negotiation right now are facts on the ground that were perhaps slightly true two and a half years ago, but nowhere near reflect the reality on the ground now. And there's no reason that the Houthis would give up unilaterally their heavy weapons, as 2216 calls for when there's no secure, security guarantees from the other side, that they will just not be massacred by the, by the coalition and other international parties. And this is where the U.S. comes in, is that the U.S. could theoretically sometimes type a signal of such a security guarantee by cutting off military assistance to the coalition, because that would signal that that support is not indefinite, um, and the coalition would be going it alone if they continue to pursue a military solution to a conflict that has no solution on the battlefield.
0: Any other questions? Right here, up there. Yeah. To, uh, yeah. On the right side, yes.
6: Hi, uh, Reed Smith with the Charles Koch Institute. Um, One faction we haven't discussed yet is the Southern Movement. Can we talk about who they are, who their patrons are, and what they might like out of a political resolution ultimately? Let
4: me take that. Sure. Um, so the southern movement in Yemen, um, or the Harak movement, as it's called um, by Yemenis, um, is essentially a, a political movement that was formed in 2007 um, upon uh, essentially around like local grievances in the south, where the central government was essentially um, predatory on the south, taking its resources and keeping the spoils of those resources within the north. Um, and so it's, it's lo- for a long time, called for the independence of South Yemen now. And it's important to keep in mind that South Yemen actually was an independent country um, before the unification of Yemen in 1990. Um, and they have um, relative, you know, it's not for me to judge the um, legitimacy of their grievances, but they have um, had popular support in the past. They certainly should be part of any negotiated solution. Um, and their um, kind of popularity and power has um, waxed and waned over the years um, through different events. Um, but now, with um, after the fall of Aden, and then the retaking of Aden by the, quote, unquote, internationally recognized government, and the UAE in particular, has now essentially, um, the UAE has provided um, political and monetary um, and military support to um, factions within the Hirak movement, um, and has empowered um, Idris Zubaydi, Um, who now has formed a kind of counter-political council called the Southern Transitional Council that has said its goal is to seek secession um, from the rest of Yemen um, and ultimately independence. Um, But primarily that is based on them not necessarily being included in the negotiating process. Um, They are interested in having power devolved um, to their locality so they can make decisions based on their local... um, decision-making processes and power dynamics, um, keeping their local resources in the south, um, in the south, um, and not just exporting them to the north. and so, this is, um, you know, in this second round of talks that Scott was saying, like, this is a, a grouping that absolutely should be included because um, any peace process that is focused on a Yemeni solution needs to involve all the various factions um, in Yemen. And that's not just the southern movement, that's the business community, that's leaders from Taz, um, which is another major city in Yemen.
0: Take another. I thought I saw one uh, okay. Oh. Got a lot of indecisive hands go popping up. Let's get a lady in the in the mix right there.
6: Hi, my name is Yasmin Farouk and I'm a visiting scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. I actually have a question for each, but I don't know if I'm allowed only to one or <laughs> can I they are short.
0: Let's, yeah, let's...
6: Okay, the first question is to you. You said that um, other European countries are helping the coalition in Yemen, not only the U.S. I had a question specifically about France because the French officials keep saying that we do not sell arms that help the Saudis or that are used in Yemen, whereas there are reports that counter that. So can you... Tell us if the French support or the uh, European support is any different from the U.S. Um, Question to you, because you said that the Middle East strategic importance has been overstated over the years. Don't you think that September 11th was a bit of pushback on that in the sense that the problems in this region do not stay in this region and they reach all the way out and that maybe they are they were wrongly dealt with with more American interventionism. Maybe it was the wrong answer, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the US has to stay far away. And then the question is to why the US is bombing us. Don't you think that people in this region again anyway say the US in any problem and again maybe because the US interventionism in this region was done the wrong way. And the last question is that to you, Saudi Arabia keeps saying that they give hundreds of millions of aid to Yemenis. Where does this money go, and do they really get it? Thank you. Should we go in order?
2: Sure. Um, so there are European countries that are also sending arms to Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain. Basically, any country where they're involved in the coalition at all, is, it's viable. Um, From what I have read, France has sent weapons to some of these countries. Whether or not they have been used in Yemen is not particularly relevant in my view because they could be used in Yemen. And there's no lingering influence. Once the UK or the US or France or Spain or Germany exports and sends those weapons and actually delivers them, they lose the control of those weapons. They are now the property of that sovereign government to use as they please. There's this kind of, there's this idea that the exporting country will retain leverage, which hasn't proven to be true because we sell a ton of weapons to Saudi Arabia and UAE and Bahrain, and we haven't been able to exert any leverage in this conflict or any other conflict. And so once those arms have been delivered, you lose control over how they are used. So whether or not France thinks they have been used in Yemen is kind of irrelevant to the question, because they could be used in Yemen, and France doesn't have any control over what missions those weapons can then be used for after they've already exported them. Um, the, The control that you have as a country, as a foreign government, in when you're making the decision to export, the only instance where you have control is yes or no. Are we gonna do this or aren't we gonna do this? You can say that you know we're gonna have leverage afterwards, they're gonna be dependent on us for maintenance, they're gonna need our spare parts to have these, you know, sustain these weapon systems. Iran is still flying F-14s. When was the last time we sold F-14s to Iran? Whether or not France's France's weapons that were sold to the coalition are being used in Yemen is not relevant. The relevant part is that France sold them.
0: Did 9-11 prove that we need to be active in the Middle East to protect us? It proved the exact opposite. Uh, what were the justifications for 9-11? It wasn't that we were uninvolved in the Middle East. It was that we had lots of military bases in the Middle East. It was that we led an effort and actually uh, fought against people at the United Nations during the 90s to stop this. We led an effort to impose one of the harshest sanctions regime on Iraq in the aftermath of the first Gulf War that ended up killing about 500,000 children. Uh, it was because of our support for Israel, which has been unilateral and uh, unconditional despite real problems uh, and, uh, uh, um, you know, and, and our support of, uh, of authoritarian governments in the region. So, the it's true that 9-11 was a traumatic event. It was, uh, as far as terrorist incidents go, it was off the charts in terms of how many people it w- was able to kill. It was... Uh, an anomaly and not a harbinger of things to come. Since 9-11 and the years since, about six people per year die from terrorism. Most of those are from ISIS-inspired or al-Qaeda-inspired actors and, and not from actual people who are operationally within these terrorist organizations. Um, we are, that's extraordinarily negligible. That's a manageable threat that Fighting them over there so they don't get over here is is not. It doesn't make uh, any any logical sense. There's essentially three strategic reasons for our involvement in the Middle East. One is oil, the other is uh, terrorism, and the third is uh, bolstering and 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 maintaining the alliances that we have. Uh, those alliances have count have acted counter to our interests. Um, the fight against terrorism, as I mentioned before, has actually exacerbated the problem, not mitigated it. And oil uh, is a fungible commodity sold on global markets and subject to the laws of supply and demand. And our presence in the Middle East does basically, I think, very, very little to protect the free flow of oil. Uh, allegedly, our presence in Bahrain and our daily patrolling of the Persian Gulf waterway. Um, is supposed to deter Iran from attempting to close the Strait of Hormuz. It's hard to fathom a situation where Iran would want to do that, considering they also export most of their uh, oil through the Strait, and it would be counter to their own interests. But also, even without the U.S. presence there as a constant force, um, that was such an act, which I mean, logistically, it's going to be hard to do for any country, but, and, and Iran is very limited in its ability to do this. But for that to happen, I think, would generate an international coalition against Iran and probably threaten the survival of the regime. So these three strategic justifications are just not good enough to justify a... Uh, policy in which uh, we're constantly engaged in the Middle East. We have 50 or 60,000 troops there. We're killing lots of people unnecessarily and uh, wasting enormous amounts of our own resources uh, uh, to, to just start. So, uh, no. <laughs>
3: um, this, is not, this frustration is not at all directed at you, but the question about Saudi and Emirati aid is my least favorite question having to do with Yemen, um, and I'm going to tell you why. First, just to sort of track back over the the, the arc of this story. In 2015, the Saudis and Emiratis pledged the full UN flash appeal and then spent six months trying to impose conditions for control on that funding, which essentially resulted in no other donors contributing into the appeal. It delayed the international humanitarian response's funding by somewhere between six and nine months. The following year... um, no, well, fast forward actually a year and a half. Um, In the wake of the imposition of a full blockade on entry points into Yemen, uh, the Saudis and Emiratis announced a a billion-dollar contribution to the UN humanitarian response plan alongside a number of other investments in key areas uh, of control by allied forces. Um, The billion-dollar contribution, very constructive gesture. Um, The rest of it completely irrelevant and often misdirected. Um, ever since then the Saudis and Emiratis have fought for attention to their humanitarian contributions and at times the UN has obliged the reason and just to answer the other part of your question yes it is being distributed yes I've met um, partners of the King Salman Center in the south of Yemen who are doing good work Um, the Emirati uh, aid is tends to be much less sustainable. It's delivered through the Red Cross and there's not a whole lot of follow-up. Boxes arrive and then everybody waits for the next and nothing happens. But the reason I can't stand this question is because by answering it, I've now, I've now uh, achieved the objectives of the assistance itself, which is to talk about the merits or, or, uh, or room for improvement of what is essentially a public relations gesture that is designed to distract attention from the role that the Saudis and Emiratis are playing driving the crisis. Um, That role is uh, eons more destructive than any aid pledge could possibly be.
4: Um, And then on your final question... um... It's, it's a good question and I think it's, it's really indicative of kind of how the US sees its policy and then dismisses um, kind of anti-American sentiment as either just like has to happen or it just has no basis in reality. And I think um, that is a mistake because for decades US foreign policy in the Middle East has been securitized. It has been focused either on military interventions um, that has unleashed second order and downstream effects that have affected the people of the region in various ways, whether that's the unleashing of sectarianism due to the Iraq War and the backing of Maliki, um, or the other aspect of this is how the US has focused its um, approach to the Middle East in terms of providing security assistance to various authoritarian governments in the name of stability. if the Arab spring taught us nothing, is that authoritarians are neither stable nor do building pseudo-military dictatorships create democracy. And you would think that, you know, the United States might have learned this lesson from Latin America. Um, but unfortunately, what we've seen time and again is that either these, um, these uh, state institutions that we build up um, under the auspices of the military either create kind of a... Um, unbalanced society where the military has so much control that they're the really the only state um, institution that is actually functioning, and everything else is more like feckless pluralism that um, is at the behest of the military, or eventually um, there is some type of movement within the political institutions that create a fracture, and a key example of this is Egypt, um, where there is um, long-time democratic leanings of the population finally come to a fever pitch, but the military is so strong that it then clamps down on that, and the US only viewing the Middle East through a security lens, denies that a coup happens, and continues to back the military, which creates, again, another yet another self-fulfilling prophecy where um, extremism is unleashed because we have essentially helped prevent um, people expressing their own political grievances with a government, which in turn pushes them towards other third party sources of power and often picking up arms. And so this is not just the situation in Egypt. We've done this with Israel. Um, We did this with Yemen um, years before the revolution. revolution and then kind of outsourcing the transition process in Yemen to the Gulf Cooperation Councils, um, who again manipulated the process to make sure that it sustained their interest, not necessarily the interests of the Yemeni people who took to the street in that revolution. And so I think while Washington is kind of eager to dismiss um, you know, uh, people from the region saying, oh, the Americans are bombing us or America is the source of all of our problems, we should actually be listening to those voices. Because over decades, we have helped create these problems that we are seeing today. And only through a radically different approach that actually focuses on centering and lifting up those voices and what desires they have and what needs they have can the US actually be a force for good in the region. And that really is not based on the use of military force.
0: I think we have time for one more. Uh, Let's go in the middle here. Good morning. My name is James Boyd. I'll be a
6: grad student at Johns Hopkins in January. So my question is about the legacy of the Arab Spring. So it seems to me as though,
0: looking back on the Arab Spring, there is internationally a Conflict between social movements in sovereign states and geopolitics and grand strategy on the part of major powers. Um, so I have I have kind of two questions. One, how do how does the Yemeni citizenry feel about the Arab Spring in hindsight? And two, do you think that successful social movements in the future will require parallel social movements in major powers that? Uh, demand restraint.
3: I can start, I suppose. Um, I don't think Yemenis feel one way, only one way about, about the revolution. Um, Yemenis are as diverse in their opinions as, as we are in this room and more broadly in this country. I think there are a lot of people who I talk to who uh, feel betrayed that the effort that they expended to um, push out a longtime dictator has ultimately resulted in the world's largest humanitarian crisis. Um, And further, that international attention on that crisis focuses mostly on the conduct of outside actors like Saudi Arabia and Iran, um, and not not on the social movements that brought it about, um, or the domestic political movements that are suppressing those social movements. Um, So that's my answer to the first question. The second question, I don't know if we if if we need to see social movements for restraint. I think it's possible, Um, but I think a much easier conclusion to draw is that um, the the Trump administration's vision of America First as a as a foreign policy guiding principle is incompatible with those movements. Um, the, The the fundamental choice that America First asks you to make are is are you a citizen. Of your country, or are you a a, a participant in humanity, a member of humanity? Um, It's a choice that Republicans and Democrats have never, uh, at least at conceptual level, asked us to make, um, and it's one we shouldn't have to. And at at, at a very basic level, um, for a start, we ought to be supporting those social movements rhetorically as a matter of administration policy, and hopefully as a matter of practice as well.
4: Yeah, I would just add to um, kind of tease out the last thing that Scott said and that um, I think, you know, under the Obama administration, um, many officials were quick to rhetorically support the movements in the region who were led by youth primarily, um, calling for change or reform or the fall of dictators in their country. Um, But there was no actual tangible action to. actually support them, to you know, bring um, them together with the established um, kind of points of power within those countries and negotiate a way forward towards a unity government, towards um, a political system that actually would serve um, the people. Um, I keep coming back to Egypt. I lived in Egypt before the revolution. And it was very clear um, in 2010 um, that there was a change upon us. And people were going to um, finally stand up for their rights. And then they did. And the Obama was very quick to make his Cairo speech. And then nothing really happened after that. And I think that's where the connection to social movements here um, are very important to connecting with movements in the country. Because I think there is a, a new um, wave of people in this country who understand that um, we can better America all we want, um, but ultimately until we address our role in the world, we can't actually strengthen ourselves or um, strengthen other people. And that our security really comes from securing other people. And how do you do that? You listen to the needs and desires of other people and ensure that our government is not an obstacle to achieving those things. And. Um, Part of that is kind of a a wide reformation of US national security policy to understand that perhaps we should be um, expanding our approach to not just dealing with governments, but also dealing with civil society and social movements within those countries. Um, Because until we see those things, Unfortunately, it appears that people are very happy to try to go back to the pre-Arab Spring status quo of just bolstering authoritarians to address these kind of inflated threats that um, Washington often helps create. Um, to serve other countries' interests that aren't actually in our interest necessarily. Um, and until we kind of have a reckoning with how we approach U.S. engagement in the world and understand that we, it's not just what America needs, it's what the, what the world needs, um, we won't see um, sustainable change or um, you know, res- resolution to conflicts that are often rooted in political and economic issues.
0: So I, I take a slightly different view on, on our approach to uh, movements around the world. I, I don't think it should be U.S. policy to pick and choose uh, who uh, we want to support in various countries. I don't think it's any of our G.D. business. Uh, and uh, we can actually trust, trust our elected officials, as I think has been demonstrated uh, uh, pretty clearly, to make the right decisions. Uh, I'm all for uh, rhetorical support for uh, groups that we find that are consistent with our values, and I'm even more for you know civil society and groups like Oxfam and uh, uh, think tanks and non-governmental organizations and, and so on, and activism uh, in support of these groups. That's that's very good. But with regard to your question about whether a parallel movement in great power countries towards restraint is is upon us. Maybe. I'd certainly like to see that. My colleague, Trevor Thrall, uh, has done a lot of work on uh, shifting public opinion uh, generationally. And the millennial generation is more than any of their uh, predecessors, uh, more inclined to to want to have a restraint uh, approach to U.S. foreign policy. Um, and they, they don't have the – they, I, I, we. I'm a millennial. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we don't have um, – in our history and in our recent memory uh, a picture of the United States as the victor in World War II that needs to solve every global problem and stick our noses in every nook and cranny. Instead, we have, you know, the blunders of the Cold War and the war on terror as our sort of intellectual background. Um, And uh, it's becoming more and more clear how unusual U.S. foreign policy is, how unusually hyperactive it is. In the past 30 years, we spent about $15 trillion on the military. It's an unfathomable sum of money that no other country has come close to. We have 800 military bases in about 70 or 80 countries. The country with the next most overseas bases is Russia, coming in with a strong nine. (laughs) China has one. In the past 30 years, we've engaged in more individual military interventions than we had in the preceding 190 years of our existence as a nation. Those numbers come from Congressional Research Service. Uh, this, is a, this is insane, our, our, the level of hyperactivity that we have on the world stage and how often military-centric it is as opposed to using the other elements of our power. And so I think that's becoming more and more clear. Uh, and so uh, hopefully it will... Um, and gender more support for uh, restraint oriented policies. I want to thank everybody for coming and for listening and for your input and for your questions. Uh, I only found this out just now, but we are serving some, some breakfast, some coffee and pastries on the second floor. If you walk out here and go up the spiral staircase, uh, you're welcome to that. Um, I'm pretty sure that's correct. If nothing's there, just leave. <laughs> <laughs>